Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by my housemate, a good friend from San Francisco who comes down quite often, who is slowly making what we might call a transition in lifestyles, um, kind of bringing him on to talk more about that, and just just an overall good dude who I have a lot of great conversations with, who I think the audience might also find very interesting in that, you know, he's a 51-year-old man, he's led a, a very interesting life in, in different different ways. You know, he's done the whole Wall Street thing. He's also been in India, you know, seeking whatever he was seeking, spirituality. We're going to find out and uh, find himself here now in a place that I think, and this is what struck me, I think for the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, is the first time you ever felt like you fit in anywhere. And that kind of struck a chord with me personally, because I found the same thing here. Um, Dale Dagger, the opening whole like anthem of this podcast is Dale Dagger's statement is like, I just didn't fit in America. And when you kind of said that to me the other day, I was just struck by that to the core, you know, like I know exactly what you're talking about, brother. <laughs> you know, so that said, you know, Jamie, welcome to the show. I'm really Thank happy you. to have you. Thank you for doing this. Sure. Um, Jamie's somebody who, you know, I can always rely on in a pinch and somebody has got my back and like Thank I said, you. we're housemates. So it's like, we do share a lot of time in this cool environment and I've gotten to know fairly well over the last few years that you've come and gone, you stay for long stints and then you leave for long stints kind of as I have done. But you know, like in our conversation, it's always been like the motivation to get back here, the motivation to make a life here. Jamie's a professional photographer, um, takes amazing photos. Would you call them lifestyle photos? Uh, yeah, they're kind of, I mean, if it was commercial photography, they might fit into that lifestyle photography vein. But um, I think uh, touched or big words for me are things like authenticity mm -hmm. or realism right uh, and trying to let people be themselves mm -hmm. and you do you capture that i mean you jamie seems to have a passion for really capturing the locals in their environment you know he makes an effort to go to the heap which are these kind of horse parades put on by i mean back in the day they're put on by the elite class in nicaragua for the peasant you know workers um, to have a party um and he does he goes and he really captures i think the essence of what this place has to offer and um you know with that said, you know, this place, like we just talked about, has something that you and I have connected with. Maybe it's the people, maybe it's the environment, maybe it's the anonymity that this place offers up, where we don't really know the social norms, the social mores, which is kind of cloaks us in this blanket of ignorance, <laughs> you know, that we can like thrive in, in some way, shape or form. And maybe Dale's the same. I don't know how he would you know, articulate that, but it's like, you know, when you when you first came, you were a guest at Giants Foot. That was your first yep. experience here. You, you came to Giants Foot Surf like 10 years ago. Yep, to the surf camp. To the surf camp, to to, to be a surfer. And I, I remember you just being a very peaceful individual. You know, you came <laughs> by you. yourself and you're somebody that was just, I could vibe with. And I didn't feel like I had to like jump over any fences for you to ha make you have a good time. You're somebody who was just 
authentic and cool, kind of like your photography. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Was that the first time you really felt like, hey, this is an environment that I could really thrive in? Uh, no, not at GFS, um, mm-hmm. because uh, GFS was sort of the all-inclusive thing, mm-hmm. you know? I didn't really get out into the community, and it was pretty focused on surfing. And I was pretty so focused on surfing, but uh, only to a point, mm-hmm. I'd say. So without a broader local experience, I didn't have much context beyond meeting John and getting to know you a little bit and um, sort of getting some familiarity. Yeah. And, you know, John seems to be the common thread between us where, you know, John episode 27, John Robert Eames, Captain John Robert Eames, that, you know, has always been the light of many people's lives and many people's adventures you kept in touch with over the years. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I'm not um, someone who keeps in touch well, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, um, but I, I definitely connected well with John. I'd, I had a daughter, you know, in a difficult relationship and John was going to have a daughter, mm-hmm. um, in a difficult relationship. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we both had, uh, kind of spiritual interests. I think we'd both done these meditation retreats called Vipassana, which are these 10 day silent meditation retreats. And, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, he made an impression on me, but also we're from the same area in California. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't really keep in touch, but then maybe three years would go by and I'd hear from John like, Hey, I'm coming to, I'm coming to Richmond, you know, you want to get together. Um, so I saw him a couple times and then when he was moving down with Peely and, uh, you know, fixing up the suburban and packing the trailer, I hung out with him some then. Yeah, just sort of kept in touch at a real low level. And then maybe three or four years ago, I just came down for 10 days uh, to kind of see what it was all about and just had a really wonderful time. And that that trip was just really about fun and uh, getting to take a ton of great pictures. Um, that was really inspiring for me. And um, seeing kind of the way John ran the place and John's values, mm-hmm. um, real different from anything you'd probably find. Most places. Um, Anywhere, really. You don't meet a lot of people that do life the way John does life. Yeah, exactly. And uh, for me, there's a lot of um, uh, acceptance and I'd say safety with John. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't feel like I need to be one thing or another. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that's nice. That was nice for me to be around. Do you think it's John specifically or do you think this place kind of offers that through a lot of the interactions you have? Because I agree with you, like, not only John, because that's how he's been with me my whole life. I got to be me. He got to be him. And that was always something I think we really had a foundation of trust with. But here specifically, I think I get that a lot with other people. Like I do get to be me. Yeah. In my worst ways and my best ways. And, and whatever face is on that day, people are just like, oh, it's Chapin. Yeah. Um, and I think about that some. And, uh, you know, earlier you mentioned the anonymity. And I kind of think just the opposite because mm-hmm. I feel like here it is such a small town. And, uh, you know, if you're drunk at the bar, the whole town's going to see you or enough of the town so that the whole town's going to know. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably get videoed. <laughs> um, you know, we're all sort of known for our, uh, goods and bads. To me, it feels, uh, much less judgmental, but I don't know how true that is. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've said that to other people who have a lot of familiarity here and they've disagreed. Yeah. Um, 
and felt like the locals are real judgmental. Mm -hmm. Um, but either way, I feel kind of accepted and like I can, uh, be appreciated for who I am yeah. and be who I am right. and be appreciated. <laughs> right. No, I think that is interesting because it is a small town. Everyone knows your name, just like in Cheers. And like, yeah, when, when we have one of those nights where maybe our behavior was a little bit out of character, or whatever, and everyone knows, and I'm sure everyone talks, it's a very gossipy little town. They are probably judging you heavily behind your back. At the same time, though, you see them and like, you don't really feel it. I guess like I don't, I personally don't ever feel it. I don't feel like, yeah, likewise, like I've burned a bridge per se, or that someone's never going to want to be my friend again. It's just, yes, it comes and goes and, or that moment comes and goes and we just all kind of maintain our status quo. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I relate to different people differently, but it's like, we're all part of the same little town and we mm -hmm. all got to run into each other every day. You know, and um, so in a sense, we're all, it's not really family, but, you know, we're all connected in a way that you don't feel so much. Yeah, it's come up in, in past episodes, you know, and before, back in the day, it was, I think, more vibrant in the sense that, like, we did actually really rely on each other, kind of for our survival, yeah, you know, bet. with water issues. The dirt road. The dirt road, just getting things in Revis, you know, everyone was quick to offer, like, hey, I'm going to Revis, can I get you anything? That's kind of changed over the years, just with the population growing. Uh, but there still is that underlying, I think, need that we have for each other. Yeah. Being in a culture that we will never be included as a local in. Yeah. And so we kind of have that core understanding that, you know, we have each other that we can really vibe with and understand because we come from a similar culture. And that really bonds us in a special way here. You know, like, you can always give me a shout and I'm going to have a place sit with you and and talk with you over yeah. here over anything, you know, where if you'd had a Nicaraguan friend, <laughs> but yeah, if you had a Nicaraguan friend, they would, uh, maybe not really relate to you in the same way. Yeah. And for me, uh, that is something I wonder about, like, and maybe I'm happily blissful or happily ignorant, blissfully ignorant about it, but my place in this, hierarchy you know i don't even like hierarchies very much but my place in it and um and you know i'm definitely wealthier than almost everybody and um i go you know put a card in the wall and money comes out and i fly home when i want um and uh yeah i don't know how um how that is for them or uh, it definitely gives, uh, all of us, all of us gringos some shared experience and, um, yeah. How does that, I mean, does that bother you that you kind of have that privilege over everybody else? No, local wise. No, not at all. I mean, uh, I feel like I just need to do my best to be a good responsible person and come from the circumstances that I, you know, I don't want to pretend to be poorer than I am or, try and gain advantage from the privileges I do have, you know, mm -hmm. I just, um, would rather, again, like I went back to, you know, be known for who I am yeah. or, you know, yeah. Yeah. And when you say like known for who I am, that's what Jamie, the, the kind photographer, or? <laughs> like, how do you I don't want to be kind. I mean like, yeah, that's a value, but, um, no, just, uh, like I, I try and know people for what they do 
mm-hmm. how they act, you know, how they treat other people. But everybody's different, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I don't really, it's not for me to say how someone else should know me and like me or dislike me, mm-hmm. but um, I would rather that rather than the car I drive or the job I have or the house I live in or any of that kind of thing, it's more about um, how and who I am day to day. Yeah. I think that's something we share also, I mean, growing, or you being, I think you're pretty much been in San Francisco most of your life, or roughly in that area. I've lived a lot of places, but grew up there and then have been back there. Well, I didn't live there 20 years, so that's pretty long time, maybe. But that was when you were in New York. In New York, and then in Michigan, and I went to school in Chico, and I went to school in Colorado, and went to school in Philadelphia, and then traveled. Mm -hmm. Um... I lived in New York 10 years. Was there any place that you lived in the States where you didn't have that sort of uh, uh, sense of materialism or, or being judged by materialism for the materialism? I mean, like, this might, this is going to sound <clears throat> strange, but I was happiest in New York City. And huh. I felt more at home and more socially comfortable there than um, anywhere in America I've ever been. Why? Uh, I think it's the directness of mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I felt like New Yorkers wouldn't have a problem communicating to me one way or another how they how they felt about me yeah. or what they wanted or where they were at that moment or whatever. Uh, they just seem sort of pragmatic and easy with agreement easy with disagreement easy with apathy um and also easy with each other and that they're sort of i mean i haven't lived there in 17 years so i lived there in the 90s so but um uh at that time uh even you know even pretty wealthy new yorkers still rode the subway you'd still wait online to get your bagel or your um ham your egg (laughs) sausage egg and cheese or whatever it was it was striking because I moved from New York to California. In New York, I always felt like I could joke around with people and fool around, you know. So, like, if I was ordering something, you know, I could joke around, have fun, just verbal fun, in a mm-hmm. sense, with whoever was um, serving me. And they'd thrive on it, you know. They're like, I don't know, I don't have an example, but just that kind of willingness to have a human exchange. Yeah. And then when I moved to California, it was like, um, it was like, it just felt like just the opposite where if I tried to do that, I was suddenly crossing a boundary and mm-hmm. I'd feel like the shutters close, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole, and, uh, uh, it was striking for yeah. me at the time. Yeah. I can, I can kind of relate. I mean, I definitely have been accused of, uh, being insensitive and blunt in, in the way I communicate and, have always felt more at home in cultures where it's very clear what somebody wants of you or needs from you. And I really appreciated that where I totally know where you're coming from growing up in California where you, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to call it face value, but like you never really know what that person wants, you know, like, or how they feel about you. We'll meet for, let's meet for lunch. We're definitely going to get together for lunch. And then you never hear from them. Yeah, that's the perfect example. Maybe you can, is that different in New York when they say, hey, let's meet for lunch and then they show up or? Yeah, nobody's going to waste their time saying, 
let's meet for lunch if they don't want to meet for lunch. Yeah. That, or that, I mean, that's how it felt. I'm yeah. sure plenty of people waste their time in all kinds of ways in New York, but, yeah. um, or the other thing I appreciated about New York <clears throat> is people are, um, serious about things, um, or passionate about things in kind of a different way. So like if I met somebody in New York and they said, Oh, I, I really like opera, you know, or uh, the subject of opera came up and they'd be like, Oh, I love opera you know, and they probably really did love opera. They probably went to the opera and could talk to me about the operas they love and the composers they like or the history of opera. But in California, somebody would say, oh, I love opera. And they meant they have a positive opinion of opera. Like opera is something that's they're good with. Mm -hmm. But they might not really do much with opera. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I constantly think about what you're saying in a line from that movie. Uh, I don't know if it's called Enigma with the Codebreaker from England that helped us out of World War II. Cause it yeah, I know the, the I know the story. Yeah, so but one of the lines is like, why do people always say something that they don't really mean? You know, because he couldn't, whatever, he had Asperger's or whatever, but right. he couldn't understand. If someone's going to say, let's meet for lunch, and then they don't want to meet you for lunch, really like that confused the hell out of them, which sounds like you're somebody like that, and I'm yeah. somebody like that, like... That's so confusing. You know, yeah. Why would you say that? <laughs> like, either it's fine, really. <laughs> yeah, just tell me the truth, dude. Or dudette, whatever it may be. But um, but you're a seeker, too. I mean, obviously, something has driven you to learn more about that or, or go see cultures that maybe can help you get to a different part in yourself, maybe where you're more comfortable in different environments. I don't know. But I know you went to India for a long time and kind of sought spirituality and and what i guess my question is like what were you looking for like what did you think you might find when you went there to really study uh yoga and meditation i believe it was yeah to study yoga um i don't know like my yoga story is uh being in new york probably early 90s 92 or 94 something like that and i uh, just not feeling good uh, just, uh, just being stressed and not sure what I was going to do to make a living. Uh, I just kind of moved there from California and I knew a few people from art school, but didn't have a job. Um, I sold a car and got like $10,000 and used that to move to New York. Um, from where? Uh, well, I'd finished school in, or I hadn't finished, but, uh, <clears throat> I'd been in school in Michigan and uh, graduate art school and then uh, went to California probably for the summer maybe and then uh, sold the car and moved to New York. Um, but it was just hard and uh, stressful and lonely and somehow, I don't know, somebody suggested, friend of a friend I think suggested this lady in um, right by uh, Union Square. She had a big... She had a full floor on Union Square. She was one of those squatters that got to keep one of those. Um, <laughs> good for her. Uh, yeah. So she had this beautiful space, but she'd teach yoga in there. Um, and so I went and I tried it. And what I remember is just coming out of there just feeling like a million bucks, you mm-hmm. know? Like I went in kind of stressed and all clinched up, maybe I'd say now, you know? Like mm-hmm. my shoulders were probably tight and, uh, yeah, just not feeling good. Uh, when I came out, I just felt totally different. 
Uh, so wanted more of that. That was at the beginning of your New York experience? Yeah. Or early on, early you on. know, the first couple of years. Then you, I mean, you got a job at Wall, in Wall Street. Yeah. So, uh, I was temping. I, I didn't, yeah, I, I stumbled into Wall Street. Okay. Uh, but I was temping, uh, working for a temp agency. I had been working for artists, which is a common thing to do, but. What does that mean? Well, if you're a, uh, if you're an aspiring artist, mm-hmm. one of the more traditional things for you to do would be to go to New York and work for other artists who are going to hire assistants to do whatever, mm-hmm. weld or prep canvas or roll out clay or depending on what that person did, that's kind of like you're in that milieu and you're doing kind of related work to your aspirations. Got it. Um, and I did that a little bit, but, uh, I don't, I didn't like the non-professional aspects of working for artists. Mm. You know, they weren't always easy people to work for in terms of getting paid or running (laughs) their businesses. Right. And so I taught myself to type. I remember I got this, uh, typing program, you know, where you like comes up on the screen and you follow along and I got up to whatever I needed, 45 words per minute or Mm. whatever. And I went and did my little tests at the temp agencies and uh one of the ones they sent me to was this just uh, starting out fund of funds uh you know sort of a three brothers who'd got a bunch of money from their father and were uh running it with different people uh you know parceling it out to different hedge funds and i worked at the reception desk there and then from that there was three or four funds that use the same trading desk. You know, there's meant to be synergies from different people and different kinds of investors all being on the same desk. Okay. Through working at the reception, I got to know the analyst at a growth and technology fund that used this other company's New York offices. Mm -hmm. And she offered me a job to be her assistant. Um, so I took that and then the fund did really well, you know, they grew their assets a lot and, but they didn't add a lot of people. Okay. Um, so, uh, and they needed a lot of, well, I guess what I could do, what I was good at fit really well with what they needed. So very quickly I was doing a lot of, uh, really neat, interesting stuff. Like what what were you really good at that they needed? Uh, I think I was really good at transmitting information with uh, fidelity mm-hmm. and also an understanding of its potential relevance. Um, so sifting through the bullshit and just giving what they needed information-wise. Or, um, so like an example would be, I would take morning calls. Uh, and so we were... We were a hedge fund, so we were a client of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Bear Stearns. And so in the morning, those people would call our analysts or analysts, and they'd want to give... We would have a broker at Goldman Sachs. Uh, That was... They were... You know, Goldman Sachs would call that a salesperson. But our salesperson at Goldman Sachs would work to make sure we had all of Goldman Sachs' best information and most current information. And one way they'd do that is calling us every morning 
to give us the rundown on everything relevant that Goldman Sachs was doing that morning or had happened overnight. Uh, so it might be like, we think Micron is going to miss their number by two cents, and we think oil is overvalued here, and we don't think the Fed is going to raise in September. You know, there are all these sort of, you know, just the, um, you know, just the um, chatter mm -hmm. of, of Wall Street in a sense, but um, the people I worked for may or may not want to know it, and they may just want to know it in the most simple way, okay. and they may want to know it with a greater deal of nuance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it may be a stock that we own, uh, so then they'll care more. Um, and then you took that information and delivered it to... Yeah, so we had we had one of the first instant messaging I mean, not we had the first, but we used a really early instant messaging application. It was mm -hmm. called, I think it was called Net Pop-Up, and it was from Sweden or something, as I remember. Uh, but it was just a little instant messaging app that sat on your desktop or sat on your screen, and you could send the messages to all seven different people in the company or just one person in the company or whoever. Right. Um, and so that was the main way. So I'd take the call, I'd be typing as I called, uh, I mean, as I listened, you know, and then I'd send those to everybody or to the analysts that I worked for. Huh. So, so yeah. you went from a temp to like kind of working your way up into a position of authority of senses, like where you... not really a, <clears throat> no authority within that company, but I mean, they, they, they valued they definitely you, valued valued me, and uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, they yeah, they definitely appreciated um, me for what I did, yeah, for sure. And then, so why'd you then? Because it sounded like you kind of liked it. It was a good fit for you and the way your your brain worked and like how they communicate. I mean, we talked about that. Like you yeah. just like the matter of factness of how things were communicated and how easy it was to get your point across too. And nobody held on to anything. It just kind of they moved through the day. And then, so why'd you why did you move from there? I left partly from job frustration uh -huh. and probably partly from my own kind of, um, uh, well, from not, not doing what I needed to do to make that job work for me. Okay. Um, and then partly because I saw the people I was working for and with and didn't really care that much about the money, maybe didn't care enough about mm -hmm. the money mm -hmm. to be able to embrace the, not just the job, but the whole, the whole thing. You know, it's, I felt like, especially cause I wasn't somebody who'd gone to a fancy school or was hired because I had some, uh, what do they call it? IQ score, you know, I wasn't anything like that. I was just somebody who did good at what at some stuff that was really valuable on mm -hmm. Wall Street. And so there was a place for me. Um, but it felt like for me to do well, I, I had to really make it my whole life. And maybe uh, buy into the whole foundational belief system of Wall Street. <laughs> not that, but more like the social. There's a lot of, uh, there's amazing amount of variety on okay. Wall Street in terms of the kind of people and their values. And so uh, not so much that, but 
a big desire to make money because you got to work hard. Mm-hmm. Everybody's working. I would get there at seven and leave at six every day, Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take vacation, but only for a week. And when you're gone, nobody can do your job. So when you're gone, you know, the firm's trying to make money mm-hmm. and this important role isn't getting filled. You know, I took vacation, but it's not so easy. It's frowned upon probably too. No, I mean, what? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> A lot yeah. of things are frowned upon or not. But yeah. now people were so busy and working so hard that they didn't have much time for petty drama and there weren't, there wasn't much politics, hmm. you know? Um, and then you went to India from there? Yeah. So I'd been, I got more and more serious about yoga throughout my time in New York mm-hmm. uh, and went from taking classes with, uh, you know, sort of Iyengar style classes okay. um, in Union Square. And then there's a real famous yoga place called Jiva Mukti, mm-hmm. uh, which was on 2nd Street, I think. That was kind of a really special place in a funny way because it was in a apartment. Uh, and so you'd walk up so it was real funky, you know, you'd go in and there'd be, there was a real long staircase on the side of the building. You go in the door and there's a real long staircase. And then you get up to the top of the stairs and there'd be somebody, you know, checking you in, you know, and they might have like a little desk of like trinkets they were trying to sell, like from India, you know, like Ganesh statues mm-hmm. and special stones or something, uh, But then you go in and then you're in like this apartment, you know, the two living rooms. And then there was a smaller back room and uh, all the fireplaces were turned into altars, you know, so they they changed the fireplaces into altars. Uh, And it was kind of it was really like homey and um, human Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I really responded to. And it was also really intense. Uh, It was real popular and the classes would be packed. And they were really challenging, uh, hard, you know, for me anyway, you know, probably because I'm Wall Street super stiff and, (laughs) you know, hard to breathe, hard to relax. But uh, that was a neat, that was a special place for me. And I had teachers there that I really, really loved, you know. Um, Yeah, Lisa Shrimp, (laughs) uh, especially. I still remember her. (laughs) But kind of got me passionate about yoga. It was with a and lot of people who they were passionate. It, like a place in India? Well, so all the people I was studying with had studied with a few of the same people in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, Richard Freeman in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and then uh, this guy, Patavi Joyce in India. And uh, he teaches this style of yoga called Ashtanga. And I never did Ashtanga, but... I'd, I'd go after work in the evening, and it was just kind of a lead vinyasa-style okay. class. Um, but yeah, after I quit the job, I actually traveled. I, I went east, so I went to Amsterdam and then did like a whirlwind Europe tour. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I went to Nepal and spent like six weeks in Nepal, and then I went down to South India, to Mysore. And was there for like six months. Wow. That like an ashram? No. Um, so the guy I went to study with, Patabi Joyce, I studied with him for a month. But I didn't like his deal. or mm-hmm. uh, It wasn't that I disliked it, but um, 
It was just real expensive. I think it was five hundred dollars a month. Okay. And that's for, you know, just your morning Ashtanga practice with him and his son guiding you. Uh, but also, it was all um, Westerners. He okay. wouldn't teach any Indians. It was very much a scene, you know, very, very much people from all over the world who are passionate about this style of yoga come there to do that style of yoga. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always, I think, resist scenes or, you know, yeah. it gets my hackles up. Right. You don't, you don't want to be a part of the cool crowd. <laughs> no, <laughs> never. <laughs> um, and... Uh, uh, but I, I was studying other things, and uh, there was a guy there that was teaching a backbending class. Backbending is an important part of Ashtanga, so okay. if you're, uh, what's the word, ambitious in your Ashtanga practice, you'll, you'll, uh, backbending might be a challenge for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this guy, Venkatesh, if I remember his name right, who was teaching a special uh, afternoon asana class focused on backbending. Uh, and I started studying with him and really loved him. And then I was studying music with a guy, uh, a har harmonium player and singer. Mm -hmm. um, and I fell in love. You know, I met a woman, a uh, Western woman. Okay. Uh, and I mean, that in, in truth, that was probably 90% of my... Why you stayed so long. Not why I stayed <laughs> so long, but my, where my emotional energy went. Uh, uh, was just to this relationship with this woman that I was uh, really in love with. Um, and it's super fun. Yeah, I was um, going to ask because spending six months in India is just mind-boggling to me, like how people can do that. But well, the thing I always say about India is don't travel. Mm -hmm. Try if you travel, it'll wear you out, right? Or it would wear me out. The the thing people said was uh, uh, only do one thing a day. Don't do more than one thing a day. And that one thing might be get a train ticket mm -hmm. or buy fabric, mm -hmm. you know, um, because if you try and do too much, you're just going to be miserable. It's so interesting to have you say that now after the many years of people I've talked about India and the approaches that we've discussed and like never heard anybody say it like that, you know, like don't travel in India. That's kind of interesting and genius in a way. And then do one thing a day. Like when you said get a train ticket, like. I went to get a boat ticket for John and myself um, and this woman, Lily, who was traveling with us to go to the Andaman Islands from Chennai. And I mean, as anything you do, trying to find the place where you buy the tickets, super hard. And then once you're there, learning the culture of how to actually acquire the ticket. There was probably a conversation with a rickshaw driver to begin. Just No, I walked. Okay. I, mean, I was just asking directions. Anyways, I stood there for probably seven hours, about 10 feet from the window to get a ticket. There's no queue. There's no line. It's just free for all trying to get your ticket. No one, you know, it's only men. There's no women. They're trying to buy tickets. And it was just mind bendingly frustrating and like no order. Like I couldn't, I literally took me seven hours. And so did you get, your I ticket? got the ticket. Okay. And then success, success. But yeah, that one thing a day, cause that one thing did take a whole day and it might wear you out. Oh, wore me out, brother. Like I was just livid. <laughs> like, really test the patience. And then so back now I'm in the Andamans, got a month visa there. I have to go get another ticket for all of us. I was the guy because I'd done it once. They were like, why don't you go get us a ticket? You know how to do it. This one took five and a half hours to get the ticket. And there was actually a security guard who was physically beating 
some of the Indians <laughs> who were trying to cut in line with a little baton. And it was just the most insane thing I'd ever experienced. Frustrating thing. Like, I can't comprehend how people go through their daily like that. But they do. It doesn't bother them. Like, none of the Indians were bothered by the whole situation. Yeah, and that was a lesson I tried to take from India was, you know, I'd see... I'd see those people waiting online and so, so relaxed, you know, so graceful, so mm-hmm. not frustrated, you know, and they're out in the hot sun waiting to get their, waiting to buy their rationed oil or mm-hmm. cooking oil or something, you know? And, uh, you know, it's a question if, if they can be patient, mm-hmm. why can't I? Totally. Do you think if you had not met your, this significant woman that you would have stayed in India? Yeah, I think I, I planned to stay a long time, and I really enjoyed uh, being there. Yeah, you know, and um, uh, I'd come from New York and had just quit my Wall Street job, so I had money. You know, it's not like I was trying to splash around a lot of money, but I had a a nice place to stay, and you know, a tall, a delicious. Delicious tali is like, was like 60 rupees, you know, mm-hmm. which is like a dollar 30 at mm-hmm. that time, you know, and it was like the best food I've ever eaten in my life, you know, and, um, it's not a, it's not a party culture, you know, so there's not a ton of, uh, unless you're in Goa, <laughs> I've never been to Goa, but yeah, no, I, and I'm sure it's different now, but it, yeah. it's, it was like, you know, you're not going to clubs or bars, um, and India is a great place to study anything. It's a super educated country and it's an English speaking country. And it's also a great place to try and appreciate a different fabric of life. And South India is real traditional. Mysore is much more traditional than Bangalore. Mm-hmm. Mysore is the provincial capital and now Bangalore is the tech center. I think that's like an hour and a half away. Yeah. And, um, you know, you'd walk through these neighborhoods and the women are drawing the chalk mandalas on their doorsteps in the morning and people are getting uh, fresh milk that they have to boil before they can use it. And uh, you'd go to a temple and there'd be like, there'd be statues of a hundred deities on the side of the temple and there'd be an eight-year-old kid next to you and you'd say, who's that? And he'd know every, everyone on that on that wall, you yeah. know, and just the way their kind of belief systems uh, mm-hmm. and their uh, values and culture, you know, you call it religion if you want, but the way it's all woven into their daily lives is into the chaos, is into the chaos. And yeah. And the, the, I mean, the other thing about India, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make India out to be any nerve. What, what do you call it? Any beautiful, lovely, place you know i feel like india is a place where you'd see the most beautiful expression of humanity and the most horrific yeah um and the you know the stories i always remember are like the mother the distraught mother throwing her three kids in the well and jumping in after them or the angry angry mother-in-law dousing her daughter-in-law with kerosene and setting her on fire or Mm-hmm. the the child the you know the crazy stuff they do to children mm-hmm. uh horrific stuff goes on in yeah. india uh but but just like anywhere and beautiful stuff goes on yeah. yeah and that's their 
and it's not my culture, so I don't need to judge it,、mm-hmm. and I don't need to feel a part of it in the same way. Like I can just kind of、uh, try and appreciate it for what it is. So then, why here, not India? Because I mean, India. I could never live in India. No, you know that's not my.、Um, my photo opportunities are amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not interested in photographing the exotic,、mm. uh, or you know, I'm I'm、uh, I would hope to make pictures that kind of celebrate our commonality, you know, or our common humanity,、mm-hmm. maybe rather than.、Um, I feel like a lot of a lot of photography for sort of. Traffics in exoticism or uniqueness, you know the the epic moment, the rising sun on the mountain top,、mm-hmm. and I'm sort of more interested in taking everyday pictures.、Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of times, there might be some crazy event, and I won't even, you know, it's I'm not like oh I should photograph that. I'm、yeah. like, oh, look at that crazy event! <laughs> totally. Do you think that's been something though that you have developed within yourself? Because I know it's something that I have noticed within myself, where it's like that kind of contrarianism, where it's like, oh, if everyone thinks that's beautiful, then I'm not going to think that's beautiful or profound, and then you gravitate more towards what you just described.、Um, does that is that something maybe that you can relate to? Yeah, for sure. And I think,、uh, you know, I've always been、uh, kind of—I've、uh, always held myself apart a little, never been a joiner. And also, I feel like from a really young age, I had a really good understanding or sense of, you know, the dual-sided nature、mm-hmm. of everything. So, you know, if you're trying to be cool. There's nothing less cool than that.、Um, any kind of popular thing is gonna be lifted by its just popularity, you、mm-hmm. know, and probably lifted above whatever level it should be at.、Mm-hmm. In a sense, I mean, I guess what a, one thing I learned, and I think it's a real Eastern idea, but you know that that there's two sides to to. Anything that happens, you know, and and so, you know, the ha- with the happiness, there's a corresponding sadness, and with the, yeah, I don't know if I'm really answering the question.、That's、maybe、right. maybe ask it differently. <laughs> try me again. <laughs> no, I don't feel like I did said what I. No, you're doing good. I just was trying to guess get to the root of like maybe where we're both coming from because it seems similar. Where it's like we're both hugely turned off by. That dinner party where only the cool people in town、yeah. are invited to, yeah, which has happened here. And I, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. yeah, and so to that, I'd say, like, I, you know, I just saw how,、um, you know, the cool people weren't that cool. You know,、yeah. they'd talk shit about other people or they'd ostracize somebody,、mm-hmm. and、mm-hmm. it was a lot to do with their sense of themselves、mm-hmm. and kind of trying to grow their sense of themselves,、mm-hmm. um, and. As soon as you do that, you're, you know, you're out, you're out on a limb. In my, you know, the way I think about it, because、mm-hmm. you're not at a centered place. And I should, I'm sure I wouldn't have articulated it that way then, but it's, I've always been kind of 
Well, and I grew up with punk rock, you yeah. know, and that's another big part of it. And like anti-establishment, anti-establishment, anti-rock star, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, fuck you guy on stage, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and that was a huge thing in the seventies because the seventies were so rock star driven and popular culture, you know, and then disco and all this stuff that seemed really fabricated to mm-hmm. me, you know, like, um, like think about the rock star, right? Like it's one thing to be a rock star when you're 18 and then maybe now you're 21 now you're 23 and you've been a rock star for five years, you know, it's probably a bit of a routine for you, you mm-hmm. know? And if you're still doing all that same stuff, all that same partying and all that same uh, screwing around or wild behavior, is it really so wild, mm-hmm. you know, now that you've been doing it for five years? Mm-hmm. It's probably just just some routine pattern. That should be. I mean, for some people, it's not. I mean... Uh, I feel like we we both have the capability of of judging in a way that you know well we so don't the, genuinely understand where the other person's coming from. So the backstory there was what I heard about was something I read about Mick Jagger, and it wasn't really it was a big article about um, this Turkish guy who ran Atlantic Records, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and he was real influential in music. Uh, but they talked about Mick Jagger um, because he'd signed with this producer this atlantic producer and so he was part of the story and the author was pointing out that when mick jagger started you know 64 65 high tide green grass and uh, sticky fingers or he was about menace you know he was scary oh he was about being menacing okay dangerous okay the rolling stones seemed dangerous you know they didn't follow any of the rules they wore their hair different he danced really sexy he sang about things that were totally not accepted um, and new, you know, um, and that was that was part of his, uh, you know, part of his stardom, you know, and part of the part of the what was so exciting about the Rolling Stones when they came out. Uh, and then, like, I'll, I'll digress because this is this is part of the story, too. I remember walking. I first moved to New York City. And I'm walking down, it must have been the Upper East Side, like Lexington or something, and I'm just walking down the street, and there's a TV shop, and it's got all the TVs out front. And on three of the TVs, there was this guy singing, um, and he was like 18 years old, and I couldn't hear anything. And it's, and it's black and white, and he had like a white t-shirt and jeans, and he's just there singing and dancing. And I was like, holy shit, who is that? You know, and I watch a little bit and it was Mick Jagger when he was 19 or whatever. And just the, the kind of presence and in a sense, the menace, mm-hmm. you know, do you know the Stooges, Iggy yeah. and the Stooges? Mm-hmm. Do you know that music? Mm-hmm. Raw power. Yeah, and, I love it. Yeah. And that's menacing. Mm-hmm. You know, that to me is truly, truly edgy music okay. you know it doesn't feel like he's trying to be edgy like kiss is, is is kiss edgy <laughs> you know like right. does kiss yeah like kiss isn't gonna scare me right iggy pop kind of scares me yeah it's kind of um, like that authenticity you talked about yeah. with photography like having it just be so natural and so compelling yeah that people can't turn away yeah which is what mick jagger had iggy pop had they just were yeah that exactly entity, you know but if you're if you're mick jagger 
and you're menacing and you're scary and you're, uh, you know, um, how long can you be that? Without, without it losing its authenticity. and Exactly. Especially when you're making, you know, all this money and you're flying all over the world and you're eating at the best restaurants and you're hanging out with all these sophisticated people. It's like Jay-Z, mm-hmm. you know? I love Jay-Z as a rapper. Yeah. Jay-Z as a businessman? Fuck you. Okay. I could care less, you know? Because mm-hmm. you're just another guy making money. Got it. There's nothing... I mean, you're a black guy, so that's cool. I'll support you for that and mm-hmm. hopefully... You give some back, but that's nothing admirable mm-hmm. to me. Right. Um, so then what is, like, how would you define success? What makes you a success on your deathbed when you look back at your life? I don't think anybody can define that, you know? I think that's different for everybody. And It is. So I'm asking you, though, like, uh, what we, how will you know that you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish? Or you feel like you've done a good job as a human being in this lifetime when you're on your deathbed looking back? I don't worry about it because I've always kind of tried my best and I've always been a real, for better or worse, like a real moral person. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have a lot of regrets, you know? I mean, there's definitely like times when I haven't been a good friend or, Mm -hmm. you know, when I haven't been the person I wanted to be. But in terms of like doing bad things, not so much. So, and I also haven't had a super happy life, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, death, you know, okay. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I don't know what it'll be like when I get there, but yeah. I'm certainly not dreading it. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, it's part of life. Totally. It is. I, I just think that sometimes with what we were just describing, you know, with that sort of contemplation of having that authenticity meet the repetitiveness of trying to maintain it in order to either stay successful if you're a musician um, or keep the money flowing if you've if you've tapped yes, into something that you're really good at yep. and it comes 10 years down the line you're like I fucking hate this but I'm still making 5 million dollars a year and you lose that authenticity now it's just you're doing it because of the money or because of something else there's some a little bit of like a self-defeating sort of approach to that where it's like the second you or I feel like we're in the cool crowd or we're about to be successful at something and correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there might be that defense mechanism that pops up where it's like, fuck this. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, sure. And I think that's the, that's always the risk, but it's the risk on both sides. And that's kind of what I was saying about you're not in a balanced place. Mm -hmm. So what I would hope for myself in the future, Mm -hmm. let's say, is that, that I wouldn't, have to resist sitting at that table with all the cool guys. I could go to the table and I could hang out as long as it was fun or in the, just the way that I wanted to, Got it. you know, without, a res- without resistance or without attraction, okay. but just enjoying it for what it was. Tying into kind of the spiritual practice, the spirituality of just being, yeah, being with the cool crowd and being okay with that or being, being with, with the uncool, uncool crowd, crowd and being, being okay equally with okay with that. Yeah. yeah that would be, that would be a goal of mine. Yeah. And just non-judgment across the board, acceptance. I don't know about that okay. um, because, you know, I think in a way, in a sense, we all have a duty to navigate through the world. Mm-hmm. And part of the way we do that is ju- judging, you know, or evaluating or testing <clears throat> out our ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and we always decide where I think all day long we're making choices about we, what we accept and what we reject, right. you know? So, yeah. but I think the idea of just being there for that experience in that moment, I really resonates with me. Yeah. Do you think you're far off? I think I'm getting closer and closer. Do you think this place has something to do with that sort of getting closer and closer? I might have said said that before, but I actually, when I was at home the last five months, uh, it was interesting because it was a really hard time personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of sad things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I managed to really take care of myself nice. and not feel as uh, upset or uh, depressed um, Mm -hmm. as, you know, I think I would have in the past. Um, And I did things that I probably wouldn't have done in the past, like um, really worked at getting exercise every day and really worked at doing my yoga practice every day Mm -hmm. and played a lot of music, Mm -hmm. you know, just uh, I was, I was kind of bummed. So I didn't, you know, and I didn't have money. So I, it wasn't like I could go do fun stuff. And I feel like if you don't have money in America, your social opportunities are really restricted. Okay. Um, uh, so I was home a lot, sort of just with these really sad thoughts, mm-hmm. but I wasn't, uh, you know, I was okay with it. I was working through it and feeling okay about myself and doing stuff I cared about. Yeah. So I don't know. That's cool. It's a step forward in the sense that like it sounds like accepting the situation for what it is or taking responsibility if you will and instead of yeah letting that spiral into self-destructive patterns or whatever patterns that you normally went into in the past you found yourself yeah accepting it and then doing things like running like playing i know you played guitar while you were home and really fell in love with our bass or bass, bass yeah. you know and and found a certain amount of salvation in that which you know you can take anywhere any human being can take in, you know, like, yeah, some people's lives aren't as fortunate as ours and they do find themselves in situations that they can't really get out of under the circumstances. Sure. Yeah. And yet, and I know you've encountered this too, yet they, they might be happier than you or I. Somehow they, they take a certain amount of acceptance and responsibility every day they wake up and they go out and achieve something little or big or whatever, whether it's a, a long run or learning something new for themselves or, and that can be cross-cultural poverty doesn't matter either. You know, you watch some of these people who live out here in the Campesino areas doing their daily routine with a smile on their face, you know, and their life circumstances are rough, rough, you know, but yet they're just, you know, smiles and just getting through the day, man. Yep. You know? Yep. No Wearing clean clothes. Yep. Wearing clean clothes. Yep. Looking good. No self-pity. Just oh. proud. Very proud people doing yep. their thing. Yeah, it's an example. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And so kind of circling back to the whole start of this conversation, which is, you know, fitting in and in Nicaragua, finding a place where for the first time you feel like you can just really genuinely be yourself and not ever feeling that necessarily in the States in the same way you feel it here. Um, Is there more of a permanent sort of move for you here coming on the horizon? Like, do you see yourself trying to make a, a life as an expat? you know, if you will, or will you always keep one foot in the States? I I couldn't say either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my approach will just, I think, go try and go step by step. And right now, 
Uh, I'm happier here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's more work for me here. Yeah. Uh, I like uh, all kinds of things. You know, yeah. the work I do for John, uh, the photography. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're getting T-shirts printed. Um, I'm thinking about fishing trips with Kevin. Cool. But I like work, yeah. you know, and I like learning. And I'm happier here. So mm-hmm. that... that leads me to want to be here more. So I'm trying just kind of follow that emotion. I'm trying, I'm heading that in that direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hoping to be here for most of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some commitments back in the States that I'll have to go back for. And, uh, I'm going to see how it goes. You know, I cool. mean, this is a, it's a small place and there's not a lot of, uh, diversity. Uh, and there's not a lot of variety in the people that come through here, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm sort of a 51-year-old artist, intellectual-type person, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure how long-term satisfying it'll be here. But at the same time, you know, it's not like I, uh, you know, have this huge art and ideas kind of network in San Francisco mm-hmm. and um, I feel like I can really relate to the people here and being a part of a community, I would say like I couldn't overestimate the value in that for me, mm-hmm. just being able to walk down that road and see faces I know that know me um, and yeah, feeling like I'm some small part of a real community mm-hmm. rather than, some cog in a, you know, money-making engine mm-hmm. um, where I'm supposed to produce and earn and spend. Yeah. Um, that's depressing for me. Right. Whereas human interaction is um, nurturing. Yeah, there's, I mean, I've always, and you might disagree, but I always felt like the feeling of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond has been fulfilling for me and helpful because as the saying goes that you might relate to this you know i was the the loneliest guy in a crowd of people i knew and friends i loved but i was the loneliest guy surrounded by all these people you know like yeah i get that um and i i think i I feel that and benefit from it too you know mm-hmm. i'm i'm sort of even from even when i was really young mm-hmm. i didn't have big worldly ambitions you know like i never wanted the house on the top of the hill or I never wanted, um, you know, I never wanted power or riches. That was never that attractive. I wanted success for sure. Uh, but success was always happiness to me. Yeah. And I never even knew what happiness would look like, mm-hmm. I don't think. Or I never even saw a model for happiness. Um, so I had this idea, it's sort of like the yoga story in New York, like I want to feel better you know, but I didn't know what, how, you know, how to do that or what, what would make me feel better or Mm -hmm. anything. So I was just trying the things that society gave me, you know, and they didn't work, you know, and then I really think it was finding yoga, um, which I think gives you a way to individually with your own primary experience, you know, not reading it in a book or not, um, watching it on a movie screen or anything, but individually day by day kind of, um, peel back the layers to 
a better, better self, a yeah. better me. That's cool. I mean, I strive for that as well. Clarina was really nice to come on the show and ask me a lot of questions. And that was kind of what was unearthed was just making decisions based on where I feel best. And that's kind of been a light a guiding light for me Yeah, or, or projecting in the future, how I could imagine myself feeling if I did this or that, and then following those sort of little like inclinations to go here or go there. And, you know, just, yeah, always just trying to put myself in that environment that I feel best in. Yeah. I, the same, like I've never had ambitions to have the house, the car, the land, the, the social material status. That is what a lot of people use to find their place in society. You know, especially back in California where I come from, not to judge all of America as the same, cause I know it's not, but definitely where I come from. But Chapin, what I got to say is you're the hardest working guy in Higante, man. <laughs> in what way? Just you grind out more hours than anybody. That's true, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm basing it on where I project and I feel in the moment like what's most fulfilling and happy for me. Right. You know? And what I'm yep. doing is, yep. is definitely difficult. I mean, this is a challenge that I never would have taken on in the past as my old self. Yeah. Cause it just didn't, I didn't have any interest in it, but under the circumstances I've grown into and found myself in, like I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. You know, like I feel like I'm genuinely carving my own niche into this world. That's great. That never existed before. Yeah. And it's, it's very fulfilling. It's very scary. It's hard as fuck. Right. You know? And in the end, like on my deathbed, if I look back and say like, I didn't succeed, that'd be okay. Like, cause I tried. Yeah. You know? that, I mean, that's how I feel. Like most of the time I do my best, Yeah, you know, and that's as good as it's going to be, totally. but I'm doing my best. Totally. <laughs> Did you want to share uh, where people can find you with your photography stuff? And they might be able to see kind of that authentic lifestyle, not lifestyle, but authenticity that you described in your photographs or. Yeah, sure. Uh, the website is jamiethomas.com and, uh, it'll probably load kind of slow if you're here in Gigante. <laughs> so maybe do it when you're in Managua. Um, or anywhere else in America where or anywhere in America, it should work. All right. You're listening from because they're cool photos. Jamie does a great job of capturing the, the, the authentic, genuine expressions of the people we're surrounded by, whether it's gringo, Nicaraguan, doesn't matter. He does seem to have a great eye for just that moment, which is like very real. And people yeah. come across as Thank just you. doing that thing that they are doing, whether it's riding a horse, digging a ditch, whatever it may be. So check it out because it's beautiful. He does a good job. He also sells uh, uh, photography books of his photography. No? No, no. I don't have anything for sale right now. Cool. But other than my services. <laughs> Roger that, dude. And uh, yeah, um, people have suggested doing prints. So cool. I might do, I might have a web page for prints in the future. Sweet, man. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Chapin. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.